Kia ora and welcome to another episode of Power Up, a podcast powered by Venture Taranaki and produced by Raw Collective. Here we celebrate the region's entrepreneurs with their trailblazing spirit and their can-do attitude. Taranaki innovators are leaving their mark on the world, but living the famous Taranaki lifestyle. I'm your host, David Downs. Taranaki is a region where the unique natural and business environments collide to create a place where people can flourish and achieve their full potential. No mai, haere mai, we welcome you to hear our enterprising future like no other. Today's guest is engineering pioneer and art enthusiast, John Matthews. John is the managing director of Technics, a bitumen company based in New Plymouth, and was the owner of Fitzroy Engineering for 35 years before that. John's success in roading and construction has seen him named the godfather of bitumen. He designed and built the largest bulk bitumen facility in New Zealand, and that and his many other achievements have seen him become a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit. John is also a leading art collector with a stunning personal collection, and he's played a hugely influential role in the development of the public art sector around Taranaki. He was at the forefront of what was, at the time, a highly controversial project to construct New Plymouth's now iconic wind wand, and he's helped to bring to life many of the famous works of his late friend, Len Lai. John's story is one of perseverance and assurance, showing the value of believing in projects in oneself and being driven by one's passion. He has played a significant role in developing the Taranaki region into what it now is, and he shares some of his incredible behind-the-scenes tales of his now notable achievements. This is a fantastic story that illustrates where the Taranaki region has come from in many aspects, and what also may lie ahead. Where have you come from today, John? I've come from Technics, Technics. where I work. Really? Mm. Was, it, was it a bit of a drive-in? <laughs> First traffic jam in New Plymouth. Have you always lived in New Plymouth? Yes, but not when I was at university at right. Canterbury. Yeah. And I worked in the United States for about six months before I was seduced back to New Plymouth. Really? That sounds mm. like there's a story there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a beautiful place to live, isn't it? It's fantastic. Yeah. Best city in New Zealand. Yeah. You've got a family history here. I think your father was Correct. brought up here as well. Yeah. Gosh, a lot of family. Did you always want to follow in the family footsteps? No, but I did. Right. <laughs> you were drawn back. Yes. And what did you study at Canterbury? Oh, engineering, mechanical engineering. Oh, okay. Hmm. And is that something you've still continued to do? Absolutely. Oh, Fitzroy Engineering, of course. You, you know, you, for many, many years, you were the owner of Fitzroy Engineering. Right. How did that happen? My seduction to come back, I was working for the International Harvester Company in Chicago, and I was asked by the Shell Company, invited by Shell Oil in New Zealand, to come back and build a terminal for bulk bitumen in New Plymouth. We were to own it as a family, and I thought that was a neat idea. So I came back to design and build this place, and then I thought it would be a good idea to build it ourselves. So wow. I was the seventh member of the staff with Fitzroy Engineering. Right. There you go. They asked you to build a plant, and you said, rather than build someone else's, I'll design and build it myself. Mm. And then set up an engineering company to do it. Yes. And then that engineering company went on to be yes. one of New Plymouth and, and Taranaki's most successful Yes, largest in New Zealand. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? This is a specialised mm. manufacturer. But I don't own it now. But you grew it from seven, seven to how many employees did it have in the But end? it was ironic because it had a malthoid roof and it had an earth floor. And the only place that um, didn't leak was where the lathe was. The rest of us, if it was raining, walked around in overcoats on. 
in right. the workshop. Because <laughs> the roof the rain, was a bit leaky. Through the roof. Oh, yes. really? It's now, you know, housed in a purpose-built building. With a proper floor. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have the roof to be fixed. But that must have been a wild ride for you to grow a business from, I think, to a 1,000 employees or something mm. in the end. Well, that included our roading company. We yeah. were number two in, in the business of building and maintaining roads in New Zealand. Yeah. But we sold that too without a contracting. Right. So what was the secret of growing that business? What tips oh, and tricks have you got for good us? Good people. You can't yeah. do it on your own. Yeah. And Taranaki's full of good people. Always yeah. has been. Loyal, thoughtful, honest, wonderful place to yeah. employ people. Yeah. And a terrific range of people. We've got 14 different nationalities. As a joke, we're known as the United Nations. Is it easy to attract people to a place like New Plymouth? It is now. Why? What's behind that? Oh, it's the infrastructure. It's just a lovely place. You see it yourself. Drive around, you'll see it. I know, it's great. There's cafes and bars and restaurants and nature walks and surfing and everything. Fitzroy Engineering you sold eventually. Why did you sell it? What was behind that? Oh, we'd make millions one year and we'd lose millions or half a million the next. (laughs) I got sick of it. Contracting and also I really wanted to build things that had more moment in them right. and uh, we're inventing things that's what we're we're a very inventive company yeah. now and we are inventing things that are going to be used around the world right. it's a global perspective that's fantastic so technics let's talk about technics for a while for the layperson like me what does technics do we're experts in the business of bitumen and that's the black stuff that holds the rocks on roads ah and that's Hard our top, science. that's called in the US or something, isn't it? Yes, or asphalt, asphalt in the US. Right. Um, and it's a product that's made in oil refineries. Okay. And uh, we have unique technologies in that game. Oh, I didn't know that. You make it, it's, it's a byproduct of the oil industry. Mm. Goo, basically. It's the gooey stuff. When it gets a really hot day and you see the road sort of slightly done to uh, bleed a bit. Yes, but we've got a new bitumen which we'll be introducing to New Zealand next year, which doesn't do that. Ah. It doesn't get so soft at high pavement temperatures. It doesn't get so cold at low pavement temperatures. And that's the kind of innovation. And the plant that we're building at the moment for the largest, second largest oil company in the world employs some of that technology. Oh, Okay. And so you're able to sell not only the bitumen itself, but the technology, the technology the know-how. Absolutely. And is that sought after globally? We hope so. Yeah. <laughs> We're building one for the second biggest oil company in the world, and uh, that's a good start. That's the second plant. We've built another one, which is in South Africa. Oh, okay. You're building the plants as well as the yeah, licensing here in the New tech. And, right. Yeah, and sending them over. God, it's a bit of a mix-up of all the things you've been involved in, engineering and building and bitumen. And, mm-hmm. and you did some in Fiji as well, I think. Oh, we have a terminal in Fiji. Yes, we took a tank from New Zealand. It was the largest tank, yeah. oil tank, in the world to go across an ocean. And we took it from Northport to Suva. Right. Hell of a journey. Hopefully it was a fine day. <laughs> <laughs> Not some of those It was crazy, really. Oh. It was... Uh, we're not very risk averse. Well, I wasn't in those days. Right. You just want to hang it, stick it on a boat, see exactly. what happens. Yeah. On a barge, <laughs> What's actually. the worst that could happen? It'd fall off. How do you insure something like that? Did you insure it or you self insure? No. no. Could end it up at the bottom of the Pacific. Exactly. Oh, but it's not. It's on the Suva. Hmm. Look out for it next time you're on holiday. And um, what's the economics behind a bitumen business? Do you, you're selling the product or are you licensing the technology for the product? Oh, we're or? doing both. Yeah. We've got a marvellous research team, wonderful people, and uh, we're always looking at new ways to do things that have been established for a long time. It's an industry that's slow to change. Yeah. The typical oil industry. Right. 
And are they typically a bitumen manufacturers like in an oil producing region or area? So they're because yes. they're a byproduct. Yes. Well, we can make bitumen too with our plants. Oh, okay. So we are a small organisation doing what large refineries do. And who are your customers? If it's the plants that we're designing and building, that's oil companies around the world and what we call terminal operators, people who've got terminals to import products, including bitumen or oil. And then the other clients are the people who ultimately use roads. So that's every citizen in New Zealand is the ultimate client, but that's through either, you know, local authorities and from central government. Right. So roading contractors via the local authority are buying... Our stuff. Gosh, I never thought this much about bitumen. How did you get into it? It's a family business, as I understand. Uh, My father imported the first bitumen from Rockefeller, actually, Standard Oil Company in the United States, in wood stave drums in 1914. And he drained the bitumen out, poured it out, it's very viscous, uh, and then chopped up the wood staves, put that in a firebox underneath to heat it up. And then he sprayed it through this very simple kettle, which wasn't insulated and had a hand pump. So there you had a very unfortunate person who was cranking the pump to push the bitumen through to where his hand lance was, and he was spraying by hand. And he had a horse to tow this thing around. And they were spraying that on top of the gravel to to hold it all down and keep it together. Yes. Opanaki was one of the first places. Curry Street here in New Plymouth was the first pavement in New Zealand to have bitumen on it. Is that right? And the important thing about the horse was that this heater would frequently catch on fire (laughs) and the horse would bolt, you know, with this flaming (laughs) thing behind. It was pretty crazy. So he had a rope tied from the bridle of the horse around his waist and if it caught on fire, if the heater caught on fire, he'd pull the rope and release the horse, you see, and it could bolt. (laughs) Let the horse go, save the bitumen. First first paved road and also the first street parade, perhaps. That's fantastic. (laughs) Gosh, it sounds like an amazing period and just from there from those you know relatively humble beginnings of bitumen and barrels mm. you, you built up to starting to make it in New Zealand and mm. create the machinery yeah was your father involved all the way through that no 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 1950s he pulled out yeah and you taken it from there and again gone from strength to strength yeah I bought him out what's the future of bitumen I mean you're obviously doing a lot in the innovation space which is not something I think most people would think about when they think about innovation well lots of people ask us you know if this is the end of oil as a petroleum fuel for yeah. motor vehicles and I think it should be you know, mm-hmm. or for change to electric or hydrogen or whatever is the new medium yeah. but uh, we can get all the bitumen the world needs from places like Venezuela in the future it's not an issue and it's much better than concrete it's much cheaper than concrete is it and nowadays you can recycle it so we we tick all the boxes of being able to be quite green part of technics is very focused on green changes in the pavement area with bitumen oh how would you recycle it you'd sort of dig it up and and remelt it sort of thing absolutely and then take the chips out and add some fresh bitumen and put it back down again wow Never thought of them doing that. Uh, they're doing it all around the world now. It's great. Now, as well as your business experience, you've obviously been a big part of the art scene here in Taranaki mm. as a collector and enthusiast yourself, but also the work that you've done with helping establish the set. But how did you get into art? You're not the typical profile of an art enthusiast, an engineer, bitumen maker. <laughs> I don't know what they, what they normally look like, but I wouldn't have imagined. Uh, like me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was at university. What I liked about it was, apart from the visual impact and kinetic sculpture, the audio-visual impact, really was 
a nice counterpoint against what we were doing in the commercial world. For me, it's always been philosophically interesting that we measure, we being the world, measures the cost of producing things, including, you know, the cost of producing bitumen or whatever. But art, the value of art is what somebody's prepared to pay for it. And it's such a nice antithesis to measuring value uh, by the cost of the inputs. I like that, and then I just, uh, it appeals to me, the visual arts. I think it makes a contribution to the world. Yeah. makes us, uh, fills nice spaces or fills awful spaces with, with nice, nice things. things. No, I agree. And I think that point about value versus cost is interesting. Oscar Wilde said that a cynic is the person that knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. That's right, I remember and, that. Yeah, and it sounds like that's an interesting juxtaposition between exactly. the commercial world, which is all numbers and dollars and results, and art world, as you say, which is aesthetics and yes. emotion and do you see that the two things kind of uh, reinforce each other, perhaps? Do they, does the fact that the commercial world exists give rise ah, course, to the arts world? Because you, you need sponsors. Right. And sponsors need to have money in general or access to money. Yeah. So there aren't a lot of poor philanthropists around. No, but there's lots of poor artists. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so they could learn from each other, perhaps. But um, again, and it's sort of, again, going back to the thought there that art is potentially the reason why we exist, whereas commerce is the how we might get there. And again, yeah, Churchill was made that whole point about yeah, opening the art galleries during the Blitz, because he said, if we're not opening art galleries, what are we doing it for? Mm. Like, that's why we're here. Good thinking. Yeah, he was good like that. Now, so tell us about your, your art collection. Have you got any favoured pieces? Well, we had a huge fire, so I collected from university days, and quite a lot of the works were commissioned works by what are now notable uh, New Zealand artists. So Linda and I had a collection of more than 300 works, contemporary works, sculpture and paintings and so on, and they all... The whole lot were lost in this mm. colossal fire. It must have been terrible. So, yeah, it's yeah, certainly the biggest loss in New Zealand in terms of contemporary artworks. Yeah, but you can start again because it's an evolving process. You right. know, there's always artists coming forward with new works, yeah. and that's quite exciting. So, right. yeah, we're we're underway again in Building a modest a way. Contemporary collection. Mm. What a tragedy to lose so much value. Yeah, it's knocked our socks off. Actually, I can imagine. It's like losing a loved one in many ways. But you've also spurned your love of art into helping the flourishing art scene here. And hmm. I was joking earlier that the two things I knew about art in uh, Taranaki, thanks to my family connections here, was uh, Michael Smithers and Len Lai. Hmm. I'd imagine you knew Len very well, from what I understand. Yes, I worked with Len in uh, New York City. So it was a whole different uh, perspective on life. Yeah. He's an so, amazing man. So for those of us who've only ever seen him in those little videos they show at the Lynn Lin Lai Centre of him in his studio creating things, what was he like as a person? Oh, wonderful. Extremely intelligent and extremely accommodating. Always thought outside the box. Big head, big yeah. mind, yeah. and philosophically very interesting. And said once to me that the best thing that Len's ever done was to invent himself. <laughs> and uh, he's a very unique New Zealander. Yeah. Who had never it? been heard of, you know, until we really brought him back here. Oh, and that was the interesting thing, because you have really preserved his spirit and, and his life. And you set up the Len Life Foundation, I think, yes. in 1980. What was that about? Well, that was uh, in concert with Len. What should we do with your works? Why don't we have them in New Zealand? So that was a conversation that we had, yeah. uh, including Anne, his wife. And the New Plymouth City came on board. We commissioned two works from Len, which was Trilogy, Flip and Two Twisters, and A Giant Fountain. Yeah. And he was so pleased about that, he was happy to gift 
all of his personal collection to the Len Lai Foundation, which we established. And that was the beginning. That's fantastic. So we've got a lot of work still to build. We've built about 20-odd works from his design, and we've got about another 20 to 30 large some are very large works, huge works. Really ambitiously yes. large. Made of bitumen or other things? <laughs> <laughs> but there. we need to get on with it. And obviously you, you set up the Len Lai Centre as well in, in yes. 2015, mm. which is a masterpiece of design mm. and just a beautiful jewel in the heart of Thank you. Well, yeah. that, you have to uh, compliment the architect, Andrew Patterson, as well. Yeah. I mean, it was mainly him, wonderful person, the very erudite mind. I asked Len what kind of art museum would he like to have his works in? And he said, oh, a temple, of course. <laughs> and so that's what we built. It is a temple of sorts. And what was it like doing the, going the journey of building an art gallery to house these? Well, he's always been contentious, of course. Yeah. And that's, you know, building the, the Windwan project was contentious. And with all these sort of things, if you feel that you are doing the right thing for the long term, or maybe for the short term, but uh, that you have a consequence which is good for people and yeah. going to make a worthwhile contribution, you have to stay with your views and get on with the job. So I was pilloried a lot in the case of the wind wand. The proposal was for the millennium, yes. and I proposed to the city council that we build this work from and the design, you yes, had the design. Yes, yeah. and the councillors, oh, I had a half-size work at, at our home that oh, Linda right. and I had. <laughs> but that's, a, you know, half-size is a lot smaller than what you see now. Yeah. I said to the council, it's $300,000 we have to raise. You provide $100,000. We'll ask the Millennium Committee to provide $100,000, and I'll find the other $100,000. Yeah. And I've been told by councillors since that they, after I left, they all thought it was a huge joke and there wasn't a hope of us raising Of you the getting money. the other. So, so they said, we'll front up yours we don't so, think you're going to get your Yeah, so what the hell. So they said, uh, we'll give you the 100000 if you raise the other two hundred. And we made a really good presentation to the Millennium Committee and they decided it was the best Millennium project in New Zealand and they gave us the balance. They gave us the 200000 <laughs> <laughs> So I had a lot of joy in coming back and saying the council right. Right, I'll have my bit now. Pick up your third. But it was very contentious, of course, mm. and the sphere blew off. We had a design issue and the sphere blew off shortly after it was uh, the work was installed and so uh, we had to re-engineer all of that, which took about another year. The nice thing about the public of New Plymouth is that they then decided, actually, maybe we liked it after all, so there was a change in mood. Yeah. And then a marvellous lady in, in Inglewood ran a competition for wind wands, and so over Taranaki these little wind wands turned up. Really? All over the place. People's houses. And yes, there was, there was uh, more than 100 of them. It was just wonderful, and the press got involved, people got involved. So there were some really memorable ones, and ones I re one I really loved was a long piece of bamboo, and it had a red band gumboot on the top. Oh, that's nice. It's real <laughs> authentic. It's real Taranaki. But it's a really popular piece of art now. I, I wandered down there and took a photo of myself with it yesterday. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it's a good piece. And it's iconic. It's literally on the sort of the photographs of things now typically have it. So you must be pretty pleased to see yeah. that. And the Land Life Centre was the same. Yeah. And, of course, there was a hell of a row about what it was going to cost, but it didn't cost the city of New Plymouth a cracker. Really? Uh, we raised all the money. Wow. And the, but the outside of it must be particularly difficult from an engineering point yeah, of view. It's the, fantastic. The folds on it. 
yeah, Patterson's conception, and then that was built by a New, New Plymouth company called Rivet, and it's fantastic what they did. Yeah, it it's it's a very good grade of stainless steel. It's called three one six stainless steel, highly polished to a mirror finish, and that's why it's been up there for five years, and it's still in perfect condition. Yeah, it sounds like art's also in the family history as well as bitumen, because your mother, I think Mary contributed to the art scene here in the arts projects that you were doing, but not in the way that most people would think. Well, she was always a supporter, and my parents built a garden, which is, it's awarded one of the seven best gardens in New Zealand, and it's really? got some global global awards, uh, Tupari. Uh, that's a pretty special place, which is now owned by the Regional Council, and they're doing a marvellous job looking after it. And then Pukiiti was a consequence as well, building Tupari and then building uh, the Pukiti Trust. So she was part of all of that, behind that? Absolutely. She was a supporter. Wow, your family's left its fingerprints on the on the town in a great way. There's a lot of research apparently that having strong culture and arts as a hub will build entrepreneurship and innovation. Do you agree with that? Yes. Well, Canterbury University, Linda and I, or Technics Fund, projects at Canterbury University, masters and pre-graduate projects and... PhDs of Len Lai Works, and they're very, very popular courses yeah. that students take because it's wacky stuff, you know. It's out of the ordinary. It's highly creative. From that point of view, it's, it's terrific. And at Technics, we've got works going on there with Len Lai Works, and the same thing. Our staff just love it. Yeah. So it spurs the kind of creative side Absolutely. of the innovative potential. Yeah. Absolutely. And then in the public spaces as well, I think when you've got beautiful public artwork, it just yeah. changes the dynamic of a city. Absolutely. New Plymouth's very different. I used to come here a lot in the 70s, 80s, 90s when I was younger, and New Plymouth wasn't as vibrant and interesting. And now you've got these little laneways and you've got murals on the wall and mm. interesting things and artworks in the distance. And But the disappointment is we still have graffiti and oh, yeah. uh, destruction. Yeah, we should respect the public spaces and the artwork within them. Exactly. But, I mean, that's an example of a setback. You must have had a number of setbacks, though, through your career, both commercially, commercially, but also through the arts world, yeah? Oh, commercially, you take risks and... Uh, you put giant containers on ships to Fiji. <laughs> Sometimes it pays off. Tanks. 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 <laughs> yeah, it's full of risks. Yeah. It's hard when you're starting off because the risk often outweighs the commercial benefit, yeah. then you're in trouble. What were some of the biggest challenges you had when you were setting up and establishing? Oh, money, yeah. normally, and convincing banks that what you've got is a durable and worthwhile idea. Yeah, and they wouldn't always come to the party. You were literally making roading products. You'd think that's a pretty safe long-term investment. Yes, I yeah. agree. But, uh, well, everybody's different, and uh, there's no mystique in this game. Right. How do you deal with failure? A great deal of resilience, I think. And that's probably my past because I lived in a lot of foster homes. Oh, okay. And my mother had tuberculosis. So from the age of 2 to 12, I was in uh, about six different uh, foster homes, on and off. So I think that developed a strong sense of individuality and perseverance and... Self-reliance. Exactly. Yeah. And that's seen you through even the tough times then in yeah. business and yes, life. Yes, Do you miss oh, don't it? scare easy. No, that's good. You don't strike me as someone who does. But it was that, that must be times even in your art career. I mean, the burning down of your home at the time with mm. all the artwork in it was I mean, tested that resilience as well. Mm. Very tough times. Yes, very awful. What do you see as the future for Taranaki? Oh, forever onwards. Yeah. Very good people here. 
Yeah. What would you hope will be like in the future? What's your aspiration for the region? It needs to have a community that always has a chance for people. Yeah. I'd like to think that Taranaki's full of that sort of thing. Communities all around the world are. But Taranaki's a, a good one. Yeah, giving people that opportunity. There's something mm. about the lifestyle here too that, that I think that, that promotes that, the yes. outdoor living. Yeah, we've got enough people too. Yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> don't need any more people, <laughs> no. really. Oh, more people means more roads, means more bitumen salt. I know, but we could do without that too. Okay, <laughs> get rid of them eventually. Would you be happy to see that business sort of sunset out eventually? Well, there is a problem with roads, and that is that they are heat sinks. They absorb the heat. They don't reflect it back into the atmosphere. So roads and pavements are contributing to climate change. Yes. And if you think that... COVID-19 is pretty big challenge. Climate change is horrifically bigger yes. than COVID-19. We've got some really severe issues because we're going to overshoot. It's going to take us huge amount of effort to turn the climate change around. Yeah, and part of it is going to be, as you say, roading in the cars Absolutely. and the way we use energy. If you were thinking about New Zealand's future, what would you like to see us do as a country? Oh, we've got to be a leader in assisting with uh, reducing the impact of climate change. We have to do that. Everybody's going to suffer, and poor people suffer the worst. That's the other cataclysmic effect of bad things happening, is that it's the poor people that suffer. Yes. Stratifies society too. Yeah. That's not a good thing. So we need to get on with doing some of that. Definitely. Are you optimistic for the future, though, if we can solve that? You are good, despite the climate (laughs) change Oh, problems. science will get there. Science Always does. There. And the resilience of people will be strong. Of course. I've got 10 quick-fire questions to finish us off. You know, these are little questions that uh, hopefully you've got a short answer for. What's the best place to get an ice cream? <laughs> well, uh, I think that little place in Inglewood that um, has um, natural food out oh, there. Good. I yeah. don't know its name. Who's good. Best surf spot? Uh, you have to ask a surfer. Oh, you're not a surfer? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. Uh, I wouldn't surprise me. You've got a lot of other th- um, strings to your bow. Best late night location? Yeah, Shining Peak. Shining Peak, very yeah, good. Yeah, the restaurant. I'm enjoying that place too. Best lunchtime activity? Loving your partner. Very good. <laughs> it's a little bit too much information there, John. Okay, um, what's your favourite beach? Tongaparu to and Waikawa. Oh, two I don't know very well. Well, they're up by Mokar. Oh, okay. And they have stunning places. You can be there all by yourself. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Huge cliffs. Great seas. That's where the, they had the three sisters. Uh, now right. there's only two. Right. One of the sisters got the half and left. <laughs> Climate change. What's the best mountain adventure? Would you go north side, Stratford side? Oh, I go to the lake, and I'm disappointed I can't remember the name of it. Oh. One, but there's a lake up that way. Yeah. Very good. Okay. What's your favourite summit or peak? I go for Phantoms just because of right. the name of it. Right. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this what <laughs> remarkable woman that. Climbed the mountain. It was quite incredible in the get-up yeah. that they had back then. What's the best annual event? WOMAD. Yeah. Well, and what's one word you'd use to sum up Taranaki? Fabulous. Fabulous. That was right there, top of the tongue. That tip of the day was fantastic. It is a fabulous place. It's easy. <laughs> Made all the more fabulous through beautiful artwork and public spaces and great bitumen on the roads. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, John. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thanks to Venture Taranaki for making this all happen. I'm sure some of you listening will be guests on this show one day. So if that is you and you have a great idea, make sure you check out Venture Taranaki's Power Up website and get in touch with one of the team. 
No matter where you're at on your enterprise journey, Venture Taranaki is able to support you and help you power up your idea, your existing enterprise, or your startup. They offer awesome services such as one-on-one startup clinics, mentoring, workshops, business and investment advisor support. This podcast has been proudly produced in Taranaki by Raw Collective. And lastly, please review and subscribe. It helps others find us. Kakite. Kite.